Welcome, adventurers, to another episode of the Market Adventure Show. I'm your host, Alex Cunningham, and I have great news. We are now on Instagram at the Market Adventures Podcast. That's at Market Adventures Podcast. One word. Quick, pause the show and go drop a follow. There, you'll get all things financial freedom, mindset, practical application, motivation, and more. And you can even message me directly. You've been listening to the show for a few weeks now, and it's time for us to engage each other so we can grow as a community and achieve our financial dreams. In this episode, we talk about the top books for a money mindset. And today we're going to talk about the book called Acres of Diamonds. All good things are possible right where you are and now. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Digit, the easiest way to save, plan for emergencies, set up multiple financial goals, and invest in your future. Search thesavings.club, that's thesavings.club, or click the link in the show notes. You'll get a free $5 to get your savings started. So what I really like about this book is it's not a long read. Uh, it's about 90 to 100 pages, uh, depending on the version you got. The one that I got had really, really long pages, not longer than the typical pages. Um, so overall, though, it's not a very long read. It's got a lot of very powerful information in it, and you can get that in a short amount of time. So the subject of the book, Dr. Russell Conwell, grew from Philadelphia, did a number of things, but the biggest thing that he's known for is a speech in the book, the speech called Acres of Diamonds, which is the title of the book. Now, the majority of the book is told from the point of view of a friend called Robert Shackleton. Robert Shackleton does a great job highlighting the life of Russell Conwell. The The overall book, the whole book, starts with a premise highlighting the speech of Conwell as he gave it to his hometown in Philadelphia, that very famous speech. But Robert does a good job of bringing light to the man behind the speech in the second half of the book. So the book begins with a transcription of the speech, Acres of Diamonds. And it goes like this. Uh, Conwell was taking a trip uh, somewhere in the desert. And he and the other explorers hired an Arab guide. The guide told a lot of stories during the trip to the caravan. One One of the stories he told was a story of an ancient, an old Persian, Ali Hafed, a very, very wealthy man. He had land, he had cattle, he had a lot of things, he had everything. And it's said that he was contented because he was wealthy, and wealthy because he was contented. So to unpack that little quote that they put in there, he was happy because he had money. But it said, but it's, but his real wealth was derived because he was happy, right? It was derived from his happiness. So even though he thought it was, it was his wealth that made him happy, it was his, the fact that he was content that made him happy, and that's what his true wealth was. But he didn't understand that, as you'll see later, because he met a Buddhist priest who came on his land and told him 
about the existence of diamonds. He hadn't known diamond existed. He knew a gold, silver, copper. He knew all the other elements. He knew all the other precious metals. He didn't know what diamonds were. So the Buddhist went on to explain what a diamond is, how it came about, and he also explained the worth, the value of diamonds. And Ali began to strongly desire wanting diamonds. It said he went to bed that night a poor man because even though he hadn't lost anything, he began to fear he was poor. And that very same uh, quote that we heard before got flipped upside down and said that he was poor because he was discontented. But he was discontented because he feared he was poor. So he, even though he hadn't lost anything, the shift in his mentality changed his whole life. So he sold everything he had. And he went searching for diamonds based on what the Buddhist, the Buddhist described as a place you can find diamonds. And he actually ended taking his life later on in the story, took his life because he spent years, exhausted his entire fortune, all his riches, searching, and he didn't find anything. Now, ironically enough, the man who bought his land took one of his camels out for a drink by a stream. And in the stream, he found this uh, black coal-like looking substance. And he actually took it out of the stream because it looked different. And he put it on his mantle. And the Buddhist came by the land again and said, oh, wow, you know, that's that's a diamond. Is Ali back? And the, the gentleman said, no, Ali is not back. But that's not a diamond. And he said, yes, that's a that's an uncut diamond. I don't know if I saw it. So the moral of the story that the guy said was, if Ali had understood what he desired, but instead of going outside to look for it, instead looked where he was first, he would have realized that he had all the treasure, everything that he needed to fill his desires right where he was. And then that goes into part of the title of the book, right? That you have everything you need. All good things are possible right where you are. And now. So the speech then goes on to speak to the the uh, the disagreements in the crowd. A lot of people in the crowd of Philadelphia felt like you need to go to start with money. You need to come from a big city like New York, California, Chicago. They had a lot of, of, of reasons to disagree with him. So the speech went on to address those region, reasons. And one of the big uh, one of the big disagreements was that, you know, rich people are bad. Or you need to have money to start. And he says a lot of things that goes contrary to popular beliefs, even today. Remember, this book was this book was written in the 1800s or early 1900s, describing a life of a man that lived in the late 1800s. But it's still applicable today. Now, he says all rich people aren't bad. All rich people aren't bad. The majority of rich people are the most honest people in the community. Now, for us listening today, we know about phone tele, you know, telemarketers, the phone scammers, the identity thieves. We know a lot of people who got rich doing bad things. But he says the majority of people who are rich 
are actually honest. And his reason for that is they are trusted with money. We only trust people with money that are honest. And the fact that we're willing to give them money for because they're providing us a value, it means that they can't be bad. Right? So that's one of the things that he poses in his speech. Another thing is he doesn't sympathize with the poor. More times than not, the people who call the rich people evil are the poor people. He doesn't sympathize with the poor because he says that your value, how, how, what the money you've been paid, you can tell the worth of a man by what he's been paid because that's what your community saw in the good that you brought. Right? The good that you brought to the community is equal to the amount that you were paid. If you're not bringing value to other people, then you don't get paid. And his rationale is, I can't sympathize with a poor man because he's not bringing value to his fellow man. Which, whether you're religious or not, our job in life is to bring value to other people. So he doesn't sympathize with people who don't bring value and then shame a man who's rich and is bringing value. Now, one big thing that he addresses in this book is he talks about the church and how the church typically will speak against you pursuing wealth and physical things. And he says, and it's really funny, he says, the church says that until the collection basket goes around. And then they want people, they don't want you to have money until the basket goes around and they, and they need 10%. They need their tithe. And then they want you to give money. He says, you ought to be rich. You know, the reality of it is you should want money. You should be ambitious to get it because if you if you have it, you can do more good with it than you can do without it. You can do more good with money than you can without it. And I said this in one of my last episodes. If you want to be a humanitarian, if you want to, if you if you watch stories on TV and you're heartbroken about people who are starving and hungry and poor and living in these countries where they have to escape these horrible conditions. You can't do anything to help them without money. And that's the reality. And even if it's not you and you join, you volunteer with the Peace Corps or something like that, they still need money in order to have you help them help people. Money gives you the power to do good. Today's day and age, you require it requires you to have some level of financial uh, income or stability to help somebody else. And a quote that he puts in here to, to kind of uh, surmise that, uh, uh, summarize that, excuse me, is you cannot trust a man with your money who cannot take care of his own. You can't trust a man in, his, in your family who is not true to his wife. And you can't trust a man in the world that does not begin with his own heart, his own character, and his own life. It is hard to take care of other people if you're not taking care of yourself. Now, you don't need capital to start. And he does a great job addressing somebody in the crowd with this in his speech, in that people think, okay, well, the rich people have it easy because they have capital to start. He says the real capital is knowledge of what people want. The world is supply and demand. If you know what people want, 
that's worth more than any amount of capital you have to get started. And he uses a lot of illustrations because he feels like illustrations are better than argument. An illustration given is a, a boy, a poor boy that had 87 cents to his name. And he wanted to be rich. And he spent the first half of his dollars investing in Thimble and a couple of things to make a product. He bought all these equipment, all these supplies to make a product that nobody wanted. And he wasted the first half of his 87 cents. And he learned his first lesson there as a boy and spent the rest of his money only to buy things to sell that he knew that people wanted. Where there's a human need, there's a great fortune. This is similar to something that Steve Harvey says in his, some of his motivation. Is your wealth is so close to you. It's so uh, natural to what you do. It's embedded in what you do that you're looking right over it and you can't see it. Something that, so an example that Steve Harvey gave that, not, not that Dr. Conwell gave, Steve Harvey gave was that he had a barber while he was uh, touring for his television. And when he was on set, he had a barber that he used to pay $15 for a haircut. And then he brought the barber on permanently as his private barber and was paying him $1,500 a haircut. So from fifteen dollars to $1,500 a haircut. So the guy was making about $6,000 a week just from haircuts. And then after Steve went bald, this same barber started barber colleges and salons. And now he makes $6 million a year. And he started this and still to this day just cuts people's hair. He started with what he already understood. He started with what he had and then scaled it up to a level that was financially financially acceptable to him. All the things that he desired, he started with what he had, right? So though Steve Harvey and Dr. Conwell are from two different centuries, they're still speaking the same language. And this is a side note. This has nothing to do with the book, but this is why reading is so important because Nothing is new. You have Steve Harvey in 2020 preaching something that I don't know if he's read this book, but preaching something that somebody wrote about and was traveling the world speaking about in the late 1800s. They never knew each other, but yet they speak to their, they're speaking the same gospel. You can learn so much more from reading something so small. So the second half of the book, as we were start, we're going to move away from the speech. The second half of the book, uh, Shackleton now steps in and he just describes Dr. Conwell's life. He was a former, former army officer, former teacher, lawyer, and author. He left the, all of those things to become a minister. Uh, he left being a minister to start a church. He started one church and then he actually left that church after he grew it to a large size moved to another church and grew that church into a mega church. The funny story about his first church is he came there first as a consult because they wanted to tear it down and he inspired them not to. And when he said he would build it by hand, nobody believed him. The next day he went and he tore down the church by hand and began rebuilding it. And as people walked by, 
they were happy to see how enthused he was. One person offered to, to donate some money, but people were still a little skeptical. And every day they just saw him work on the church by himself or with help. Actually, Dr. Sh- Mr. Shackleton, the person who wrote the book, was next to him helping him that he inspired the community. Right. He actually he then started a hospital later on in his career and then he bought another hospital and grew both of them. The university that we now know today as Temple University was the university that he started. He started with it on the principle that anybody who has to choose between working for a living and going to school to make their lives better shouldn't have to make that difficult choice. They should be able to do both. So that's, a, that's how he started Temple University in Philadelphia that stands today. And it started from a man coming to him, asking him for help. And he decided to actually tutor that man. And five of his other friends or six of his other friends once a week. And he would just teach them once a week to a point where that group grew and he just got another teacher and got more teachers and grew it into a university. And that speaks to something that he was quoted to say later on in the book where he kind of speaks for himself, Dr. Conwell, because he is in this book. The third the third part of the book, which is about three or four or five pages, is Dr. Conwell speaking directly, is that he dreams big, right? He, he dreams of future bigness, but he's ready to perform no matter how small the beginning is, how insignificant the beginning is. He understood that speed kills, that just getting started is so important. And again, he doesn't live in 2020, but if you listen to somebody like Gary Vee, if you listen to somebody like Eric Thomas, they have the same principles in that you got to get started. doesn't matter how small it is. Right? It doesn't matter how insignificant it may seem to you or to other people. It's so important that you get started with that principle and build over time and build with enthusiasm because you will inspire other people and you will learn. If you're a child, a son or a daughter of a rich person, it is hard for you to understand the disciplines of a poor boy because you need experience. You need to experience starting so small and only having enthusiasm to bankroll your dreams. So, more, more on about Conwell's life. He gave that speech, Acres of Diamond, over 5,000 times. It said that he worked 16 hours a day. And for 27 or more years, he gave that same speech two times every three days. And there was two hour long speeches. So over the course of three days, he gave that speech twice, and he didn't give it in the same place. He was traveling around the country by train, giving this speech, two-hour speeches every three days. And he devoted every single dollar of those 5,000-plus speeches to helping a young man seek an education, to let them know that there was a friend trying to help. Immediately after he received the check from wherever he he gave a speech, he went to his hotel room. After he deducted the expenses, he took all the profit from the speech and he wrote a check to one of the boys that he has listed. He had a list that was given to him or that he made doing his own research of people who needed help financially. 
He wrote a check to one of the people on his list and mailed it to them with a positive note. Every single dollar from those speeches. He called it the lecture of helpfulness. The lecture of helpfulness. So one thing that we know about him is that he valued honesty, hard work, and enthusiasm, but he also valued inspiration. The speech in itself inspires people to start working with what they have. But the actions behind the speech also inspire people to understand that it's so important to help other people. Because regardless of if you want to make a million dollars or you only want to make a little bit of money or you're really not concerned about money, our number one job is to help other people. And that's something that he did both in his speeches and the actions that happened behind the scene with his speeches as well. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember to like our community page on Instagram at Market Adventures Podcast. But most importantly, share the show with friends and family you think need to hear this information and get them to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever they get their podcasts. Because the more people we reach, the more people we can free. Until next time. So another another example he gives in the book is uh, two of examples are one there was a man who his wife wanted him to go get a job and go to go get money because he hadn't been working and while he was outside thinking he actually carved a, a toy out of wood for his children to play with because they had been asking him somebody walked by and said hey you should make that toy for kids in the unit in the in the neighborhood and he said well yeah i wouldn't know what toys to make though this is all i know i just make this because my kids want this and the the person actually said hey do not you just ask your kids what they would want and then you make the toys so he went and asked the his his children what they would want he made the toys and it turned out that other children wanted those same toys too and he ended up getting rich later on. I forgot the name of the 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 store because it was in, it's a store that was in New York City. But he ended up getting very very wealthy, making toys from ideas he got with his children. He got based from his children's desire for toys. So, and the last example, another example, uh, there's a man with a millinery store. So they make um, they make accessories, clothing accessories. He failed. The business had failed initially. And with the business, he actually decided to start over. He failed financially. He decided to start over the business with the same people that worked there. And instead of blaming them for their for the, for the failure, what he did was he started over. He reconstructed their contracts and said, hey, I can only pay you when you make a sale, when we make a sale. I can't pay you like before when we're not making sales. After he did that, he said, hey, don't make anything. He went onto the street and he just sat there for hours watching people walk by. And when he saw a bonnet on on a lady's head or on on her hat, when he saw a bonnet that she wore with pride, 
he went and then described the bonnet to them and told them to make that. And then he said, don't make anything besides that bonnet. And he went back onto the street and watched again and found another bonnet that people were wearing, came back and told him to make that. From then on, his store became successful because he only made and displayed bonnets that and other accessories that were already popular, that people were already buying. 